You are listening to part four of the Poemathon, an all-day non-stop sponsored poetry reading from a lineup of 60 brilliant poets in May 2019. As of this podcast being published, you can still donate to our fundraising total at bit.ly poemdonate. Your donation will help support the Poetry Society's program of events, publications, education and outreach work, and keep the doors open to our central London venue, the Poetry Café. That's bit.ly slash poemdonate. Thanks. The next poet is Leo Bosch, who's um, a Latino-British bilingual poet who was the winner of this year's Keats Shelley Prize. Please welcome Leo. Hello. Um, I'm going to read um, a series of poems from a sequence uh, called Table Variations. One, kitchen table. Imagine this. Mother sits near the rusty stove, chops onions for the puchero pot. Radio's on. A soft bolero by Lucho Gatica. Somos. We are. She sings along to her favorite tune. He wants to talk dog sleeps under the table. He doesn't know how. He met an older boy. They kissed. It just happened. In an instant, his new dirty shoes, her stained apron over her knotted hands. Kitchen's bright yellow light undoes him. Mother senses his stare. Dinner isn't ready yet. He wants to say things. That same night, a storm breaks out. Water overflows the gutters, takes everything away. Leaves, twigs, a straight, soft string. She doesn't have much time. Oval table. Profane, Four-legged thing, a holy place of gatherings, father, mother, three kids, a ghost eating asado, Sunday mass, barbecue, sins familiar, sins scattered all over the old checkered tablecloth. Pray, one day you'll have a family like this. All these traditions will pass on to you. Pray. This broken table now dies slowly, now lies alone in a tool shed somewhere south. High altar, and there is an epigraph, Genesis. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. A piece of furniture with a flat top and one or more legs, providing a level surface for eating, writing, of us kids, and father still preaching, we're both alike, you, my son, and I will make you, you love every woman, mujeriego, like dad, cracked, broken legs, or so he says. 
writing this life unknown to you, so apart. Tell us, oh, why you feel a man hidden inside, liar, you love hairy legs, so familiar, or so he says. Ode to a dining table. This dining table I saw could sing, could really sing. Sometimes it wanted to walk. Away from us, it wanted to be freed. No more family dinners, endless breakfast, no more chit-chat. It was tired. Tired, this dining table could really speak. Spoke to me sometimes. It was made of carob tree, algarrobo, bright red as poison giant ants. It came all the way from Paraguay. It had four legs but could expand, opened up, folding, unfolding. It really did sometimes heard me whispering, I hope this stops, I hope this stops. Scratches, I made scratches, little marks on its skinny legs, unholy secrets, bloodless ciphers. I prayed to it, we brothers, the table and I. It wanted to walk away, move out somewhere else, somewhere far. One day it finally did. We saw it leave through the front door. It took some time, all that unfolding and unfolding, and left us all seated around a void, a perfect square. We didn't talk. The dining table walked away from us. I promise it really did, and never came back. Um, this is... a. Uh, mistranslation of a charm, a charm, um, um, Anglo-Saxon charm, and it's called Charm for, for a Journey. With this toad, I inscribe a circle and trust to the grace of odd. Against the sore wound, the raw night, the stinking fear, against the swarm of horror, none can spare. Even even slinking into the gland. I sing a victory charm, lift a victory scorch. Worst victory, victory of seeds. Let them help now. Let no ocean hinder me, or heated enemy beat me slow. Let faith not hover, hover above my life, but keep me safe, safe. And it's a ballad after Louis Magnese. It's called Ballad of a Happy Immigrant. In the beginning, there was a garden and a boy who counted ants, duck for bulb. All this he enjoyed. Come back a man who will never come. Father greets the pusher, his blasting radio of 80s techno on. Learn, one day you'll need to know. Come back a man or never come. The spaniel dog under the kitchen table, the endless heat, the dusty sparrows on hanging cables. Come back a man or never come. Mother's dresses of palm leaves, her sandals. The day she left, they took her things. I lit a candle. Come back a man or never come. 
father dressed younger and then remarried after a loved sweet wife he quickly buried. Come back a man or never come. We moved two times from south to north. Some things we took, some we forgot. Come back a man or never come. The sisters shared a fuchsia room. Few loves, I found a corner where I hid my joys. Come back a man or never come. I went on trains to school and back. At home, the fights burn stakes, news cracks. Come back a man or never come. The night I left, I gave some clues. Look out for me, my ties, my shoes. Come back a man or never come. The shared old flat in Naysborough Court. Six a room, a kitchenette, my home of sorts. Come back a man or never come. My lousy English searched out for words. At least I still could communicate with birds. Come back a man or never come. I met few men, went out to clubs. Some were smarter than others. And one night at the NFT, I met the artist. Come back a man or never come. The daily trips to Hampstead Heath, late coffees in Soho, were kissed in Russell Square. A builder shouted, you two homos. Come back a man or never come. We moved together by the flower market, our tiny flat on Columbia Road. A new life had started. Come back a man or never come. Long distance phone calls, dad and his orchids, his health, his lungs, the chats more morbid. Come back a man or never come. I nurse him a week, his bloody coughs, and as he died, my London flight took off. Come back a man or never come. In seaside deal, we found some peace. You drew till late. I wrote St. Quain's planted dwarf trees. Come back a man or never come. Now I swim, I swim, come sun or hail. The sea, my friend, my foe, this holy grail. Come back a man or never come. And if they ask, is this your place? I say, well, yes, my final base. Come back a man or never come. Thank you. Thanks very much, Leo. Our next poet is Matthew Cayley, whose last collection was Rake and whose next collection due this year is called Trawlerman's Turquoise. And you may find a couple of Matthew's books still on the tombola if you're lucky. So give it a go afterwards. Welcome, Matthew. Now there's a man you'll hear about most everywhere you go. He has holdings down in Texas, and his name is Diamond Joe. 
He carries all his money in a diamond-studded jar, never took much trouble with the process of the law. I hired out with Diamond Joe boys, did offer him my hand. He gave me a string of horses so old they could not stand. And I nearly starved to death, boys. He did mistreat me so. And I've never saved a dollar in the pay of Diamond Joe. Well, his bread it was corn dodgers and his meat you couldn't chaw. Nearly drove me crazy with the wagging of his jaw. And the telling of this story I mean you all to know. There never was a rounder who could lie like Diamond Joe. Well, I tried three times to quit him, but he did argue so. I'm still punching cattle in the pay of Diamond Joe. And when I'm called up yonder and it's my time to go, give my blankets to my buddies, give the fleas to Diamond Joe. Give my blankets to my buddies. Give the fleas to Elon Musk. Give the fleas to Warren Buffett. Give the fleas to Diamond Joe. Harmonica solo, harmonica solo, harmonica solo. Look in the terrible mirror of the sky and not in this dead glass, which can reflect only the surfaces, the bending arm, the leaning shoulder, and the searching eye. Look in the terrible mirror of the sky. Oh, bend against the invisible and lean into symbols of descending night and search the glare of revelation going by. Look in the terrible mirror of the sky See how an absent moon waits in a glade of your dark self and how the wings of stars upward from imagined coverts fly. Supposedly, my eyes see only violet, the one true color. Though this window has no blind, I see a violet blind. So up comes that blind. Behind it, another blind. So I pull that up. Behind that, a violet sill, on that, a vase of violets, whose sepals display a pantone shade of dolor. We are in a bind, epistolary novels stacked high on the sill behind. Epistolary, epistolary novels, epistolary novels in the email age, the ether alive with them, all our unsaid thoughts, scratched out, never mailed. Workmen, put down your shovels, epistolary novels. I wrote a letter once about epistolary novels, several in fact, they would make a book. It raised my serotonin levels. Well known fact, raised serotonin levels make you see violet. And is that not only an N away from violent as a slant blind look at a rectangle of light makes of our eyes rectangles, then violet frills at the wrist that block our entire outlook. We are galley slaves, my sweet, hot rebuffing cold. Low on the sill of your breast, an earlobe thaws on a heart. Bow to your betters, letters beget more letters, epistolary novels. Thank you very much. You've heard three things so far. The first thing you heard was uh, Diamond Joe, which is a traditional cowboy ballad. That one attributed to Cisco Houston, who was a uh, contemporary of Woody Guthrie, Lead Valley, those types of guys, and also the great-great-grandfather of Thelma and Whitney. No, that last bit was... Um, um, 
And, uh, but we all know a Diamond Joe um, added a few contemporary bits in there. Then you heard um, Blanche McCarthy, which is the first poem that Wallace Stevens, the real first Wallace Stevens poem. poem. He wrote for 15 years, rubbish, Wallace Stevens, and then scholars say he wrote Blanche McCarthy, and that was the main um, Wallace Stevens poem. And that's how you tell the age of a poet, not from the day they were born, but from the, the day when they wrote the first poem that was truly theirs. And I'm partial to that theory because it means I'm about 22. <laughs> Um, so, um, and then you heard epistolary novels, which is one of mine, and that's going to be in the, the next book. And I think it's, it would be unfitting to promote my next book when we're trying to raise money for another cause. So I'm not going to mention Trollerman's Turquoise or <laughs> September the 26th, £9.95 at all. Come on in, come on in. Take a seat. Is that my tea? <laughs> so sweet of you. Okay. Can I have that 30 seconds taken off my time? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank okay. <laughs> you. There we go. Okay, so here's another one from uh, the next book. It's called The Weight. That is W-E-I-G-H-T, not W-A-I-T. Unless you're dyslexic, and then just take your pick. That's cool. Um, yeah, and this poem is a kind of both an Ars Poetica and a State of the Nation poem kind of melded into one, but only if you see that it resembles neither of those whatsoever. Uh, the wait. If George Stubbs shouldered a dead stallion up a staircase to hang it with blocks and pulleys, its mane like a parted waterfall, the great sweating carcass, merely in order to see, then surely we should bear this weight upon us, the blood, gut, sweat, arteries and pus of what this little art is. In the meadow where the mare still goes down for the stallion, in the meadow where the stallion goes down for the stallion and the mare goes down for the mare. And in that meadow, couch grass, coleus and sphagnum moss and in their trillions, star-docked cinquefoil. And under that, soil. Okay, so this is my very... That was the penultimate one. This is the last one. And is there anybody in the room um, who is worried, you might be, about your daily caffeine consumption? Oh, completely wrong. Leave the room. Is anybody here worried about their caffeine consumption? How many? Does anybody drink above five? Oh, thank you very much. And your name is? Kate. You probably just made that up, didn't you? To just because you felt sorry for me. Okay. Okay. This last poem is dedicated to you. Okay. This is dedicated to you because if you're feeling bad about it, by the end of this poem. Oh, uh, oh, okay, by the end of this poem, you'll feel relatively even, even better, even if you're not feeling bad. Yeah. This is called The Level. It's based on a kind of uh, silly true fact. The Level. Writing to deadline, Honoré de Balzac hears black horses gallop, dips his pen in caffeine, downs 56 cups to barely kickstart the day. Coffee, black as a hearse is, best on an empty stomach. The vanishing man, he cannot wake up or sleep. A novel, a play, his heart will percolate clay, a play and then a novel. Black horses gallop, cup after tremor-racked cup until he finds the level. Thank you.
thank you. And our next writer is Julia Bird, who is so many things, it's hard to know which, which to say. But Julia is an independent live literature producer and also a promoter at J Bird Live Literature. And she has a pamphlet that came out in 2017 from the Emma Press, an illustrated pamphlet called Now You Can Look. Please welcome Julia. <laughs> Thank you, and I also work here. <laughs> um, so all this astonishing fundraising activity uh, means that I can carry on working and I get paid, so thank you very much. Um, so Judy talked about my Emma Press pamphlet, This Is It. I'm going to read some poems from that. Um, uh, basically, it's um, a, a sort of narrative arc in about 18 or 19 poems telling the story of a slightly imaginary artist from the 30s and how she finds herself and finds her art throughout the course of her life. Um, and I'm going to read three poems, I think, from this to start off with, uh, which are all about her getting closer to the man that she eventually marries. The assistant escorts her the long way home through town. He speaks, I want to show you something. Not, it seems, the contents of this baker's shop front, the three-deck wedding cakes and the trays of fancies buttoned with yellow sugar roses, and not the butchers either. He grabs her wrist and pulls her past a month of Sunday dinners, chicken, pig and lamb, and on past the cheesemongers and the oyster bar, hard against the flow of get and spend. Here, in the, in the window of the very last shop in the high street's lowest end, a polar bear. A polar bear, ten-foot fear, paws black gutter hooks, gape all murder, tongue thick dust, eyes pressed glass, fur the colour just of snow, of day-old snow, of frost on day-old snow, bullet hole patched in white leather. She stares at the taxidermist's stock, Wildfowl, fish and game, a Colorado beetle in a box, and at the collage in plate glass, three reflections, hers, the bear's, and his. What looks like a bite is actually a kiss. Without confiding in a soul, she goes to get her hair cut. At a minute to 11 o'clock, she is settled in the chair in pale towels with sweet tea and the hairdresser saying, Mademoiselle, I know we spoke of this before, but are you really sure you're sure? Their eyes meet in the same silver spot of the salon mirror and Mademoiselle nods. The bun unpinned, the plaits unwound, her dark hair sluices to the chair seat. Its length, a tot of rag curls and pintails and the first time it went up. Its gleam come from the hundred brushstrokes before bedtime for a lifetime. Count four with the shears and it's gone. That evening, she carefully removes her hat to show him from the front and slowly from the back. He blows cut hair from her white neck, his look a simultaneous double vowel. I don't know you and I do. <clears throat> And then this poem is the, is the sex scene in the book, and it's about the kimono that's on the front here. She stands in the bedroom doorway, wearing his gift, saying, don't look yet at the yellow kimono that's drunk up all the colours from the room and left it silver gelatin. 
at the volume and the line, the hem like cut butter from an icebox set against the billows and the drape, at the flowers in sewn sigils on the borders and cuffs, the wreath, the wrist corsage, the unmown April verge, at what the silkworm willed, giving up its ray chagrin, its pearl cross mink, at the charge, sparked from the model like the first in a chain of beacons being lit, again at the topaz, again at the yellow which is topaz rung, at the hooks and eyes of which there are none, at the vertical, like a line of lamplight at a voyeur's door, the spill that isn't silk but skin, at the skin and curls, at the curls and silk, and now you can look. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so I've got two projects on the go at the moment. They're both um, uh, sequences. Um, and the first one is um, a poem for each of the 36 questions that an American psychologist claims that if you ask them to one another in sequence and you answer truthfully, you cannot help but fall in love with the person that you're having the conversation with. Um, <laughs> So I can't remember which number this is, but the question is, do you have a secret hunch about how you will die? <laughs> uh, walking past the red bus depot, a curb, a trip, my frangible head. Standing on the upper deck of the red bus, all of a sudden, I am not. My earphone wires, the red bus passengers duffle toggle in the struggle, a strangle. The sky arcs and flares, no shelter but the lee of this red bus. The red bus, bus the grey road, the black crack, the red lava. The history of the red bus is on a high shelf and the bookcase is so unstable. A small red bus nudges gently at my cooling cough. Sometimes it's hard to tell who's been in the red bus queue the longest and sometimes a curse sticks. Someone ringing the bell to get off the red bus, someone banging the door to get on. A red bus tours the heart's narrow lanes, no passing place and the traffic's building up. First, there are no red buses, then two, four, eight, sixteen. I ask the conductor on the red bus for a ticket and I give him tuppence. A sign on the side of a red bus sells many million hunches. Walking past the red bus depot, a whistling asteroid, my inquisitive face. I know the rules of the road. I take the wheel of the red bus. <laughs> and then uh, this last one. Um, three minutes. Okay, well, maybe this penultimate one then is um, from another sequence that I'm working on in which a, a character called Pearl sort of biffs around in 1980s precinct most of the time. Um, so it's, at the moment it's called work experience. I might change that. Um, but work experience we'll go with for today. Compiling her CV, Pearl recalls the all-day seafood restaurant she waitressed at for summer after summer and how she knocked back oyster jokes from diner after diner with this is nominative determinism and that is lemon juice. Two tropical aquaria... 2,000 gallons apiece stood top-lit and bubbling each side of the door into the kitchen, full of angels and puffers butting their tight mouths against the glass. Shoals of silver inches, each fish red-lit or blue-lit with a central stroke zipped and skewed about the tank. 
Pearl believed that when she turned her back, they grouped themselves together into words, nose to tail in neon signs, liquor store, striptease. Once, serving scampy and garden to madam, haddock and mushy to sir, who had not swapped a word or speculative confidence or thought all night, Pearl placed the basket of condiments, the vinegar, the salt, the plump little pillows of tartar and HP at the edge of their table so far beyond arm's reach that to season their supper with acid, mineral or herb, one of the pair was going to have to surely crack. <laughs> here now okay uh, right so they get together the artist and her husband it's very tumultuous they all have affairs but this is a sort of um, reconciliation scene scene in the matrimonial studio interior night the contrails from their fight still ruling off the air but pieces of the teapot blown into cockle shells and fragments of skull no longer rocking where they lie. Their attitude squared, heads down, opposite sides of a table. His left palm up, his inside arm a puppy's belly, two weeks old. She rests her fingertips on his wrist, ostensibly to pin and steady him, although the implication is the pulse, the place his ghost patrols the closest to the surface. Palette, linseed, Rags. She loads the sable brush she'd used that night to thrust and point and paints in the color of her latest work, horizontals on his skin, starting at his watch strap, moving up, following not the arteries, but the veins. The paint, we understand, is a thinned oil, loose and slick, chill in its application, stealing blood heat in its unction, each slow brush stroke, each stripe. Does she catch his eye? No. She is bound to the task, speechlessly pulling paint through the line on his arm where the dark hairs grow and stop. The gap below his elbow crease is nude. That its space for her signature is implied. Thank you very much. Thanks, Julia. And the next poet we've got to read is Maggie Sawkins, who won the Ted Hughes Award for New Poetry in 2013, and who works with people recovering from addiction. And um, Maggie also founded the Tongues and Grooves Poetry and Music Club. So please welcome Maggie Sawkins. Thank you. This is in the voice of a stone, stone maquette. I caught your eye. Something about me put you in mind of someone long gone. Perhaps it's this hole that once was heart. Being nothing, I ask for nothing. My weight is a sort of miracle. Sculpt these hollows into what you will. I won't laugh or shriek. I have no tongue, no legs to run. No hands to strangle or stroke or tickle you in your sleep. Don't try to talk to me. What's the use? I cannot hear. I've been dead too long. 
Keep me as a charm, a silent muse. Under a stone. Leaf, you no longer know what it means to be a leaf under a stone. You've got too used to the cold slab weight of it. Absence of light has turned you into a wafer of veins, a leaf shadow. One skipping day, a child will come and kick away the stone. For a moment, you will lie there, afraid of your own lightness, afraid of what you've become, dazed by the suddenness of a white winter sun. Just had a, this is a new poem that was uh, in um, the new lovely Butcher's Dog magazine. My husband, when he read it, he said, God, that's really miserable, so I apologise in advance. Yeah. Sentience. Oops. When I think about how I lose myself in the making of a meal, I begin to love my parents, whose passing I did not mourn. Lately, I've pondered on the things they taught me, the safest way of separating the yolk from the white, how to call soup by blowing into the steam. Why, if you put a lid on the pot, the water boils faster. I guess they loved me, their insular daughter. My orphan parents, you'll never know how I spent my childhood grieving. I'll try and cheer it up. <laughs> Some of you may remember the, the group Darts. Do you remember yeah. them? I met them once when I lived in Exeter. And I worked. Oh, do you? Oh, <laughs> wow. I kissed his hand. It's in the poem. So, um, so uh, yeah, I was, uh, worked for a community newspaper called the Exeter Flying Posts in the 70s. So one of the perks of the jobs was to go and um, interview the bands. Come back, my love. That night, I met darts backstage. I was high. Not on jungle juice, just the fizz. Me being asked along by the Flying Post chief reporter to interview my favourite band. Bob Fish kissed my hand. And Rita Ray gave me a signed copy of their LP. I knew nothing then about sections or dual diagnosis, the steps you must take to visit your loved one in a women's prison. I'd only been married once to some guy from Balham who had a bedside lamp called Plato. <laughs> and even though I'd read Crime and Punishment and Wilson's Outsider, I knew nothing about keeping knives tidied away in kitchen drawers. I hadn't done anything much, never picked up a piece of the Berlin Wall, smelt fruit bats from a Port Douglas veranda at midnight, seen the way trees in the rainforest strangle each other. But that night I knew all about doo-wop. That night I was attraction. That night I didn't wash my hand. <laughs> Uh, this is uh, it's a new new collection. 
many skies have fallen, and it's a quote from D.H. Lawrence who said, we've got to go on living no matter how many skies have fallen. And I wrote, uh, it's a, a collection I wished I didn't have to have written because it's a tribute to my daughter's partner who drowned in the River Shannon. Striders. You kneel on the bank to cut the water because you want to forget. But you could swallow half a river and not steal the stories in your head. All night it runs through you, churning the random possessions of the dead. In fits you imagine the last steps of those who loved you. How they ambled in the pitch of night towards what they hoped was halfway home. You tilt your face and there on the rivers a swallow dipping its beak to scoop up striders scuttering across the surface of water. There's a terrible thirst to be found in everything. Uh, the drowners. So this is in the voice of water, I guess. They will step into you. First a toe, then the ball of a foot. Some will come clothed, though most will leave something behind. A telltale coat, a pair of shoes. They will make it seem easy, as if they are stepping into nightfall. Not even you nor the eye of a god will be able to stop them. All you can do is slip momentarily aside, witness the last bubbles of breath, and then they are yours. You may wonder what panacea they think you possess, but you'll be out of your depth. All you can do is offer up your home, knowing that even if the world tipped itself sideways, words would not spill from your mouth. Poem composed while doing a headstand. <laughs> the fir cone I picked from a Corsican forest, carried across an ocean, nestled between balls of socks, has fallen from the grate and rests where it meets my gaze as I pose upside down in my daily practice. I notice how it makes the perfect mandala, its curved wooden petals, its skirt of hearts. And in the moment after chanting, my thoughts thin and clear as tinsel, I wonder how each year in the dim days before Christmas, I have the gall to consider spraying it gold. <laughs> Should I do one more? Yeah. The zookeepers. Oh, this is, uh, I wrote this after an experience I had at Marwell Zoo. It's in the voice of the zookeeper. I could watch them for hours, Esmeralda and Zola strolling up and down on legs as long as stilted circus clowns. With my daily offerings of lettuce, radish and grape, I enter the enclosure, run my hand over the primitive patchwork skin, watch how they flutter their eyelashes like two actresses in an old-time movie. When I come back, I want to be the leaves of the tallest trees. I want to be devoured by those magnificent 
tongues. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks very much, Maggie. The next poet in this section is Stella Meadows. And Stella was volunteered as an MC in the 2017 Poemathon, and now she's reading. She's here. Yes, brilliant. Welcome, Stella. Oh, okay, right. Is that all right? Is, is that okay? Yes. Is, is that? Is that Yes, I'm not used to using a microphone. You can do this, Right, even better. Right. My poems are based on life in the Caribbean, and the, re and the past life and the present life. And I was born in the Caribbean, and I lived there for the first 17 years. So this is where all the inspiration comes from. And the first one is the language of sugarcane. Beaded locks of dread. Mimic the gate that swaggers the lane. A glistening golden grin. Words of soul murmured with a slow refrain. Sentences lined with boy and man. Said with no haste and without a pause. Sentences as a story's clause. Arising, falling, softer pitch. A language of no time, but rich. A Trinidad Creole English. Bits of English and mixed Ashanti, French and Spanish, Congo and Hindi. Old words, new words, borrowed words and colored words. A misuse of the planter's words. The working pigeon of the people who came the hands on machetes that cut the cane. Hands ever moving and the rolling of eyes. Signal a meaning, but seldom twice. Stories renewed when told again, ever a need to spice the same. Saying it big, making it new. Saying again, and sometimes true. Talking about the day to day, only to hint at what you say. The fruit don't fall far from the tree. A parent's reflected glory. The verb to be, used sparingly. H, dropped after T. Three, a numeral in a quantity, becomes tree. Strings of letters from A to Z, some missing or scrambled differently. Common Caribbean property with planters' names like James and Earl, and heads of braid and curl, sharing a tongue that swoop and swirl, and a bottle of rum as the night unfurl. The rhythm, the beat, the melody, it's common Caribbean property. And the second poem is Lot 201. Sold to Joseph the planter. I watch him on the gangway, whipping stick, cracking on starch khaki pants. Meaty fingers wrapped wide around a bottle of rum. An exchange with a merchant for lot two, 
1901. I masquerade in chains, bound hand and foot, a necklace of iron, caught, sought, and bought. Darkness falls as we toil until, sun-scorched pickers, chained and bound to thorn-studded wasteland, turned to sugar cane, and no day of rest for the whipping post yet. Each lash, a crack, a bruise, a branding, only unmarked on the souls I'm standing. I stumble barefoot through the weeping forest, the blackened night lit by the flicker of broken cutlass blades, tossed along the sun-tortured path. I pass open windows, some empty, some framing the soulless faces, chins cupped in hands, lips welded in secrecy. I shuffle through the rough, still shackled by a rusty chain, worn and broken, my eyes closed beneath an awning of matted hair. I imagine, as in a dream, the chaser and the being chased. The rustle of leaves on bare earth, tree after tree flashing by his hastening shadow in the dark, the bay of bloodhounds on his tail, the hunter gaining, the drawing of machete, the crack of gunfire, the circle of the barrel against his brow. Eyes clamshot, lead in his head, the release. The part exchange. The gravel road was no longer home. Hoots and cries, and nights alone. Hiss and whistle, croak and scuttle. Masqueraders, piggybacks, and pole bearer shuttle. Blades of leaves on army ants, limbs awry on skeletal plants. Soap suds and scrubbing boards, upturned buckets, dust and standpipes. Lamps that flickered with burnt out wicks, smoldering cow dung, glowing sticks. Choked up burners in pitch oil stoves, the eclipsing moon over the bamboo groves. A part exchange, a brand new start. Change with the head, but not with the heart. Stainless steel and porcelain bowls. Beaded droplets, odorless curls. Switch that flipped for the click of a light. Flashes in orange, tubes in white. Drums that spin, pictures inside. Bowls that flush and waves that died. The price was high. Telegraph poles with hibiscus flowers, growls and rumbles into the later hours, a jungle spawning rusty zephyrs, hummingbirds with no successors, concrete and masonry, a vista framed, a narrow road, a dead end lane. Thank you. You are listening to part four of the Permathon, an all-day, non-stop, sponsored poetry reading from a lineup of 60 brilliant poets in May 2019. 
As of this podcast being published, you can still donate to our fundraising total at bit.ly forward slash poem donate. Your donation will help support the Poetry Society's program of events, publications, education and outreach work and keep the doors open to our central London venue, the Poetry Cafe. That's bit.ly forward slash poem donate. Thanks. Be prepared for something quite special now. This is Katrina Naomi and her Japan-themed med pamphlet. Sorry, is this a thing? The Japan-themed pamphlet, Thai Food Etiquette, is out now with Verve Poetry Press. It was very much anticipated because we all followed her journey, her amazing journey through Japan for those times. So I give you Katrina. Thank you very much, Fawzia, and uh, thanks for inviting me to come tonight. Um, Part of what I did in in Japan was uh, spent a a good while walking in the poet Basho's footsteps. And um, we went over one of this very high pass. And uh, in Basho's time, then this was a really scary place because you were at risk of uh, bandits. Um, Now you're at risk of bears. So um, this is... And today there's a risk of bears on the path. We have one bear bell between us fixed to the back of our leader's rucksack. We are to stay close, to chat loudly, but stay close. And if we surprise a bear and the bear comes running, our leader says our best defense is to hold our own rucksack in front of our body and hope the bear mauls this instead of our face and torso. And at some point during this procedure, to jab at the bear's eye with a finger. That should see it off. Right. The title poem... uh, Well, I can find it, sorry. Um, It's only the third time I've read from this. I launched it here in... Literally here, last night. Um, It's in the voice of a typhoon. It's typhoon etiquette. Um, there's two things uh, just to explain. Umashi uh, means something is delicious, and Shibuya is uh, a particularly built-up area of uh, Tokyo. I think sort of considered quite trendy, but I think probably a bit naff, you know, a bit like, um, oh, I don't know, Camden Market or something. Anyway, um, typhoon etiquette. Everything is wet. Everything. Things are done properly here. For two days, you will all struggle with umbrellas. On the third day, the see-through plastic and spoke carcasses line the curbs. I wait for my name and number to be proclaimed across the land before making my arrival. I don't rush up the country. That would be inconsiderate. I take each island in turn. A typhoon etiquette. Yayama, Miyako, Okinawa, Amami, Tokara, Yakushima. I savour Okinawa, raking each field, forcing every cane of sugar, every husk of rice to drink itself daft. You will know of my arrival via text in the middle of the night. 
There's the gathering of winds, the heavy slant of rain. It is almost a relief for you. The waiting is over. I am here. Some of you bet on my wind speeds. I can perform at a mean 150 kilometres an hour. Most aren't fooled by the lull after my initial hit. But I love to see those blonde tourists venture from their best westerns. Flat cameras like amulets. They won't stay for long. I like the streets empty, night or day. When even the crows are silent, then I concentrate. Destruction used to be easier. I'd been taught to savour the ubashi of Shibuya's concrete, how it used to crumble. I spun around laughing when they built taller, but they're cleverer than before. With this all-seeing eye, I do my best work and my worst. Don't be fooled. Trees, rivers, cars, seafronts are easy. My life is brief, a few days at most. Respect me, write down my name, worship me in this way. Then shake the rope that leads to your gods. See if they are listening. Two more poems. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, one of the things, probably, that anybody knows about Japan, whether you've been or not, um, is what a sort of polite society uh, Japan is. Um, and I mean, it, you know, it is utterly charming on a lot of levels. Um, people are really lovely to you. And um, but I did find after a while, I found it a bit much. Um, just sort of that much bowing, and uh, you know, needing to know. Um, for example, if someone is sort of older or younger than you, as to whether you meant to bow more than them or less than them, and of course you can just get this horribly wrong. And um, yeah, we don't come from such a polite sort of society, I think, on the whole. So this poem is, whoever said the British invented the queue had never been to Japan. Here, you do not push onto the train from the side. You stand well back and let others off, who in a moment of exuberance are released from the sliding doors, like salmon leaping up an escalator. You do not step forward of the red or purple or blue or yellow tape, demarcating the platform's queues for every type of train until the carriage is empty. You might be expected to allow the train an inhalation of country air after the heat and cloy of Tokyo. You step on, in turn, in this system of deference, the queue being careful to double back so as not to hinder the formation of other queues for other trains on a thin platform, or to obstruct passengers with bags or babies or both. This is a polite society. I have benefited from such politeness, such readiness to help a foreigner. Yet one day, 
when the coach arrived to take a group of poets to the mountains and the driver in peaked cap and white gloves had bowed, given the necessary greetings. When it was time to get on board, no one stepped forward. A flummery of, after you, no, after you. A ranking of seniority, the more experienced, the better poet. I almost lost it, almost shouted, can someone just get on the effing bus? But I did what everyone else did and stared at the recently swept tarmac. And my last poem, <coughs> excuse me, um, have I? I could squeeze in a small one then as well. Uh, let's find a small one. Uh, okay. I'll do first tea ceremony and then I'll end up with the other one. That's all right. Um, I was very keen not to go over time because I thought I might get hit with a big stick. Okay. Um, okay, good. Okay. Um, this is a first tea ceremony. And this, this is what, um, something I did on my very first day in Tokyo when a really nice person came and met me and uh, said they'd show me around, um, which I was very glad of. First tea ceremony. I was thirsty, glad to get out of the rain. A woman in a stern kimono brought us tea. I'd expected a pot, cups with handles. I wish I could remember the bowl's colour, something of its glaze, but I was thirsty. The tea was dark green and frothed like seaweed soup. We were served so little, I went to ask for more. I was thirsty. I hadn't turned the bowl twice before drinking. Hadn't reached out for it with both hands. Hadn't drunk with three practised gulps. Hadn't contemplated the bowl after drinking. I remember enjoying the cake. I wish I'd looked into the bowl, appreciated the empty as well as the full. I did really get to like the dark green tea um, after a while, matcha tea. I don't know if anyone else has had matcha tea. Yeah, some chanter there. Nodding is good, isn't it? Just looks a bit weird to begin with when you've not had it before. You're expecting tea and it's dark green and you think, mm. Anyway. Um, Anyway, the last poem <laughs> um, is about sort of uh, leaving Japan and going home. And I live in West Cornwall in Penzance. Um, so quite a long journey anywhere. And this is for Tim. What arrival feels like. Tugging the cold window down, I check myself, worried I'll feel shy or regretful in some way. Unsure if the tears are caused by the rush of night air, the thought of you or the lights of Penzance, their gaudy echo in the bay, or just my eyes blur after no sleep for 36 hours. The time has gone backwards and forwards. I saw two sunsets on an 11-hour flight. Can that be possible? 
I focus as best I can on the moon, the stars, the end of the land, knowing I can travel no further. I make believe I can see you way along the platform. After all these weeks, I can. It's you, in your green coat from Berlin. I see your black jeans and zebra print shoes, a bunch of anemones in your left hand. Your right reaches mine as I spill from the journey. Our mouths touch. We say nothing out loud. Now I step back, look at you properly, my tears wet on your cheek. Our talk on the brief walk home is of aeroplane food, the shop that shut down, a politeness that comes of distance, knowing we'll talk and talk over the next few hours, days and months, and before morning we'll be naked. Then time and the longing will stop, not just in this act, but the moving towards each other, in understanding each other's lives again. And I will learn to give up the sadness, the joy and the normality of having been alone and not be reluctant. Thanks very much. Fawzia Kane is a Trini Londoner, an architect who loves poetry, astronomy and design. Somebody went on my... That's my, that's my Twitter biography. I don't know where they found it. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is, is a poem that requires two voices. And is Stella here? No, she's gone? Um, Okay, because um, it's strange because it seems her background is similar to mine and she spoke about sugarcane. Um, mm. This is an anthology just brought out by the Commonwealth Writers uh, to mark the 150th end of um, indentureship, which is a part of British history that most of you will not know about, apparently. Um, but uh, my great-great-grandmothers arrived in Trinidad in uh, about 1860, one of the first to come, and on both sides of the family, so they didn't know each other. One um, came from a wealthy family in Uttar Pradesh, Niagara, to elope with a married man who turns out to be a builder, an architect. I didn't, only just found out that last year sort of architect. The um, other was abandoned at the end of the contract, left to bring up her three young daughters alone. Okay. And this is my great-grandmother here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taller, you see. Yeah, I'm I'm I'll, be the, I'll be the other one. And just let us know if you can't hear us. Okay, do you want to start? Okay. Should I read the name? Or? Just start. Just okay. Rashidan and Budani. Okay. The two. My family refused him, said his skin was too dark. He built them a palace. My husband once saw a mongoose battle a snake while cane stalks were being set alight. One night he came to my window. I wrapped jasmine sheets with dowry gold. 
He led the way for me through the fields. The mongoose bit the snake, then smoke covered them. I walked with him along 200 miles of railway tracks, from the mountains to the sea. I raised my cutlass each half year, bent my back to plant ratoons before the dry season ended. The child in my belly bucked more than the ship that sailed over black water. My arms grew strong, my skin turned a midnight sheen, my hair thinned to white. My son was born four days after my feet touched the stone outcrop of that island. He collected my 16 cents a day wage, held on to his 25, said he saved it for us to go back over the water. My husband could read. They made him a driver of gangs. I never worked in the fields. The sun hurt my eyes. When our ten years were done, he put the coids in a brass pot, wrapped it in a cotton dhoti. My skin stayed smooth. My sons carried books to school. Their sons taught the sons of others. He sailed back home with all we possessed, alone. Each night I would tell my daughters of his promise. My youngest brother had followed, refused to sign any bond, paid his way to look for me. He would build us a palace with a garden of pomegranate trees and a fountain scented with jasmine. Ten years later, my brother found me. I held him while he cried, curled in my lap like the baby I remembered. Each half-year season, I waited for the rain to break the noonday heat. Every morning, I sharpened my blade. I'm not sure that I brought enough poems. This was just three short ones, so I'll witter on for a little bit. So just wait for people to sit in the back and settle down. Okay. Uh, hi. Um, Stella also mentioned uh, Creole, Trinidad Creole, which is a sort of amalgamation of all the different languages, predominantly English. Um, and I wrote a long sequence uh, in the voice of a 300-year-old ex-slave. And, um, and it was sort of based on the Stations of the Cross, and it's called Tanti Jabless um, Mourns the Death of King Sugar, because the sugar industry was sort of stopped overnight. Don't tell about the politics of it. Um, to do with the EC, to improve, to sell beet. And um, so 150 years or 250 years of the landscape just stopped overnight. The land is all now sold off for housing. Um, so this one is called The Daughters. It's uh, the voices of the women on the plantation. Your daughters of the field meet. Nothing go ever change for we. We had a bit hard now and forever, sunrise to sunset, spell after spell, Breaking we backs, half a night in a house, line up with coppers, fill up with fancy word tasks, clarify, temper, skim. But for we, boil means boil. We feed and clean your animals, food cook and lay out for you, your linen wash until your lie burns skin from your hands, 
And you take your body whenever you fancy, like meat to throw away when spoil something to sell or buy. So watch now, we dip in we finger in salt water and touching it to the corner of we eyes while we listen to we own man when he look outside to point finger to say, all you're obscene because you use skin color to discriminate and exploit a mere physical difference, I tell you. Then, with the same breath, he turned to his wife and child and say, shut up. Do what I say or I go beat the shit out of you. This is the last one. Um, it's just out filigree. Don't know if we have any filigree poets in here. Highly recommended. Okay. Um, nee Parks is the editor of it. Uh, this is cinnamon, which is a tree, a spice, a color. It's just an exploration of how a thing, a word, could mean so many things um, and so many different layers. So. Watch how the skin peels, dislodges, is sloughed off to reveal layers of mottling so soft and moist. It holds a tint only burning sugar can show in that instant when it granulates from smooth clay to sheets of beaten copper. This wound, just here on the trunk, has already dried. Even the leaves turn brittle, curl into fingers and desiccate to crumbs. Examine these differences of duskiness, the scale of half-tones that play out among and over us during our quick dawns and lingering twilights. How many will mingle in crowds to be tied to others with strings of painted lines? Which of these, when they touch and interweave with us, will you still believe are invisible. Remember, remember the splintering of their scent through the prism of air, the lick of it, the hot taste against the inside of our throats, the hurt on, the hurt off, the tongue. Thank you. That was it, sorry. <laughs> Gosh, all these poems, the poets are so special, and I'm so lucky to be introducing them. Shanta Achara's latest collection is Imagine, new and selected poems published by HarperCollins, recently in 2017. Shanta. Thank you, Fauzia, and everyone here. Hello. Uh, it's, it's difficult to know what to read in sort of eight uh, minutes, so I chose three poems randomly, but then two were published in the Poetry Review. The third is to prove that not all my poems were, have been published in the Poetry Review. So this is called Day of Reckoning. This is the first poem. I knew it would arrive one day, possibly in the guise of just another day, never revealing its purpose or plan, nor suggesting what it was supposed to mean. It was not a rendezvous I could prepare for, Life was stronger than myself, I acknowledge. Things I valued had been stripped away by sudden maneuvers, love, 
poetry, freedom, I treasured as sunlight or a breath of fresh air. Whatever I had grown accustomed to expect was perpetually beyond mine to have or cherish. These exquisite toys were loaned to me for moments to be renounced without notice, as if that was a gift. Granted that change is the only steady state. Sisyphus-like, I'm cursed with futile labor, eternally swapping my days for some promised nirvana. Having discarded all my transient toys, I wait alone the coming of my day of reckoning. Preparedness is all. Learning to live amid certainties, learning to live amid uncertainties, with grace and faith, even an element of charity, doubting but not skeptical, possessing yet prepared to relinquish all. If need be, in the right spirit, no remorse, no loss, not presuming, nor damning, I pretend not to prepare at all. The next poem is called It. And it was sort of inspired by um, a book called It, written by Inger Christensen, who was a Danish poet and writer. And this book was published in the 1960s, but it was translated in 2007, or published in 2007 by Karkanet, uh, translated by Susanna Need. And uh, I know they say that do not judge a book by its cover, but the, 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 the cover of this book was so exquisite that the poem sort of began with the cover and it carried on with, and I have quoted three of her lines. It. Before you turn the page, start reading it. That's it. That started it. It is. Goes on, moves, beyond, becomes. Becomes it and it and it. Goes further than that. You are mesmerized by the cover. A world has come into the world within the world, and the world in your hands is for your pleasure. You discover something new about yourself, start seeing in a new light. Is it a tree with branches, a dried leaf on canvas, a negative print of an extraordinary shot of it with the full moon's whiteness clustering at the edges like fat on meat? Is it backlit by the sun, an orgasmic piercing light penetrating the picture? Is it an image of a cross-section of the brain, you overhear a stranger ask another, gasping with wonder at the possibilities of it, of life, matter, antimatter, non-matter? We give and take according to our measure, open-ended our interpretation of things. Imagine the surprise when you learn the cover photograph is mud flat at low tide, photograph taken on 15th of April, 1944, courtesy of the Royal Canadian Air Force. And your journey begins through everything, language that is water, air, light, earth, shining nerves spread out like angel wings, sun in water shimmering the aura of kings, and earth a mirror for what cannot be seen. And I will end with a poem called, What You Don't Know. 
and I just thought I might mention just a couple of things. Is uh, in Hinduism we have a definition of God called neti neti. So this is not God. This is not God. So everything you can define is not God. And then I ended up having, though I have a DPhil in English, uh, I, I just couldn't find a job. So I ended up working in the city. And what I found in the city was nobody really seemed to know know much about a lot of things. And the market prices were determined by things you didn't know. Well, they, they, they said they, they knew, but actually. <laughs> then you had the financial crash and all that. And then in life, I find that there are just so many things I simply don't know. So, so, so here it is, what you don't know. As a child, you instinctively know there are things you don't know. You also know you know of things the adults think you don't know. Growing up is a process of knowing, of knowing you don't know. Acknowledging that others might know, though they don't know that you don't know. Wisdom comes when you can forget what you know, when you know your parents, friends, lovers, well-wishers, even your enemies, your best teachers, don't know. For what is worth knowing is what you don't know. Some people are born plain lucky. They sail through life without knowing they don't know. And not knowing they don't know what is worth knowing protects them from a lifetime of unknowing. For most of us, there is a price to be paid, more or less. Most of us get damaged, more or less, in the process and end up knowing what is not worth knowing. Thank you very much. Judy Brown? Judy Brown? Oh, so, we have Judy. Judy Brown's new collection, Crowd Sensations, is a worthy follow-up to her Forward Rise nominated debut, Loudness, and is a PBS recommendation. Thanks very much, Fawzi. I was so enjoying your reading that I've just like completely drifted off and I was just not remembering that I was next. <laughs> Thank you very much. Letter to my optician. Dear Tom, I will soon feel you tightening the frames from which you add or subtract lenses. Hear your breath as you peruse my aqueous humour through fluorescein. It was Christmas morning when I started to yearn. Just then, the neighbours were galloping in inflatable horse suits on Redpost Hill. I felt like crying at the mum's face when the three returned, their novelty equines starting to deflate. I love the way you look on the bright side. Never mention my minus 14 vision, saying the backs of my eyes are marvellous, despite it all. I fell asleep to my parents' two televisions and the house's sound effects, silvery CFCs chuckling in a fridge, the kettle's huff and click, thunder troubling the far side of the Rio Grande. That night I dreamed, and I believe it malefic, that the autobank dispensed a Hong Kong dollar note in substitution for a crisp 20. But I want to talk about food, how I added grated onion and garlic 
to the packet Paxo, the huge sweet bready joy of the Holland and Barrett chocolate Brazils, how we compared two types of Stilton and ate the better oat cakes. I could go on, but I'll see you soon and your ziggurat of dwindling capitals, your machine for testing if parts of the retina have started to flunk. I hope I have not fallen further into the red and that things will be different from how they have been for some time. Susan Sontag wrote this list of sort of things about her body type that she thought were notable, and one of them was sudden cravings for pure sugar. And then she said, desserts are too sweet, they just don't have a high enough concentration. Cravings for pure sugar. Out of nowhere in the dank kitchen came the need to eat rhubarb jam off a blunt spoon. Sugar, sugar, like thirst, like asking to be touched. Slugs unscrewed themselves out of the overflow and left their silver notes on the brown carpet. The days were full of invented habits, roasting sprouts with garlic, carrots with oregano. Nothing drew me but the gas burner's blue-yellow coronet and the murmurs of people who we pretended were, not, were hardly dead. Their books shuddered under my bitten nails, and the hype was true. Their buried voices rose from the high-end collected works, far realer than the actual mouths that came. The poet's friend would watch the flames and make notes while I crouched cold-kneed on the lino spooning fructose from a hexagonal jar. Outside, the diluted mountains were almost tasteless, and the pitch of sweetness climbed and climbed. Soon the pain from their family bereavements hung in the air like fish cooked earlier in the week. I kept on as best I could, the cold shrinking my skin, and ever so often the bestial feast of a fatless mouthful took the place of drunkenness, of freedom, of a soul. She, this food, I mean, and the late, the food in this poem is, I'm afraid, poison food. This is a, oh. this is a confessional poem, and a rat came into my house, and I paid quite a considerable amount of money to have it poisoned. A, rat, a trapped rat finds another kind of freedom. Weeks ago, Darren folded his latex gloves and sealed his icebox of poisons, and you have nibbled the pink sachets of pearlescent fresh bait, enough to bump off a trio of rat mafiosi. You scattered the empties, deflated as half-dissolved balls of bath gel, along with your coffee bean spore under the stairs. When I come back, there's just you and me. I can smell your death the moment I unlock the door, cool and troubling in the air's petrolish by-blow. Then I see you, pretending sleep on the sofa. Oh, Jesus, the sofa. Utterly visible, claws clutching the flex and plug from the lamp. Perhaps you've started to mummify, 
a nice touch with the designer toxins I paid for to save my queasy stomach at having you snuffed. The little I do is acknowledge your body, inhale the bitter message of your endgame of glacier and permafrost, roll you off the sofa blanket, notch you into black plastics, comf black plastics comfort, do the basic things one does for the dead. Okay. Sorry. This is a poem for my father who had a heart operation um, a couple of years ago and I've sort of and made us feel really horrible the night before because he was so interested in how it worked so we knew rather more about it than than we really wanted to know and I'm sure he didn't you know it was just his way of coping. And probably the other thing to say about this is I actually I kind of this felt like a charm because it, when I went Back to, back to the hospital to see my father the next day. I'd written this poem kind of almost at the time the operation had happened. And my father said to his nurse, like very authoritatively, he said, this is my daughter, she's a poet. He said, have you written a poem about my operation yet? And I was going, yes, actually I have. <laughs> Just about now. Just about now they're stopping my father's heart. Of late, the aortic valve has grown sluggish, but all in all, it's a fine machine, a liquid full system, intolerant of blowback, logjam, and tides. It's been running eight decades, systole diastoling the miles with its engineered bass note. Now they are cooling his body to reduce its oxygen thirst while they work. At university, he studied the moody strength of materials. He knows there are reasons why moving objects might start to fail. On his lecturer's notes, he read, upside down, argument weak, speak loud. Last night at the hospital, no one changed their tone by a decibel. They've told him a heart like that, big and hidden, rumbling in its housing, will restart itself afterwards with a twitch. That's how it was with him downing the tea at the service station, swiping the last of the eggs with the little chef toast. Time to get on, the motorway sliding, as empty as it used to be, between the heathered shoulders of the fells. Thank you very much. Rachel? Yes. Rachel Sambrooks is a writer and stand-up comedy poetry performer, and her latest show is called Stand By Your Man. This is Rachel. Thanks. It's, it's actually Stand By Your Nan. So I don't stand by any man. It's all right. <laughs> stand By Your Nan. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, why is she being so conventional in a room full of poets? <laughs> um, right, I've, got, I've actually got a pamphlet that I might be doing, so I'm going to try a couple of new ones and uh, just keep talking. Is that all right? Uh, well, it'll have to be. Right, here we go. This is called Sent to Coventry. 
Scars on my hips that swing into rhythms from ancient lore, god diver. Silence me with a mission, I do not exist but naked. I come to you all scars and rolls of flesh, god diva that I am. Dancing through high streets, showing myself up. Next to a blown up cathedrals, I am God Diva, who eats chocolate for breakfast, God Diva. Such a diva, swinging her hanging breasts with the air horns blasting. Listen to my silence, God Diva, that I am. Remembered fields and bare feet in the mud, hands in the air, swinging in prayer to 90s rave. God Diva, that I am. Scars on my hips that swing into rhythms from ancient lore. God diver that I am. Uh, this is uh, my nan, the collection stand by your nan is about my nan, who is um, from Birmingham and she was working class and she couldn't do anything with her life, so she just used to have a lot of um, ambitions and dreams. Uh, and her main dream was to be a bus conductor or a clippy on the buzzies, as she called it. Um, I want to be a clippy on the buzzies. That's the job for me. Nothing better than clipping the tickets, checking them on and chucking the naughty boys off. Taking charge of the buzz, going all over the shop, all over, travelling about all day with my clipping machine on my hip. Clip, clip, clip. Smiling at strangers that'll soon be friends. Chatting to driver. We do have a laugh, we do. In my smart, smart uniform, all bristling and clean. I watch the clippy on the buzz as a passenger. He comes over with his balanced stability to navigate the aisles, like a panther or a circus tightrope walker. He knows what to do, no messing about. Just clippity-clip-clip-clip. A smile and a thank him as he clips my ticket. He smells of old man and tobacco. And I think to myself, I could do that, I could. I could be a clippy on the buzz. I'm going to be a little bit experimental and use a phone like I'm a young person. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is kind of about it's a character having a crush on someone and they're a teenager. I haven't really got a title for it. I didn't need to talk to anyone about it. I didn't need to know how I was feeling. I knew how I was feeling. I was in love. His eyes were unnatural peels of golden apple green. A twist from his mouth scored more in points than you'd think. Feels of humour swirling bubbles up there. And then that was it. In love. My eyes to his back. A rod of iron unwavering and attached to him. The symphony in my chest rose up in octaves of meaning. I knew him. I knew him of old. Maybe we were from a past life and that is why he was my deja vu. Something about him made me stop and stare every day at 10 o'clock and that is when he caught the number 11. That's when I saw him first standing at the bus stop. Because from my window, I can see the bus stop and the people waiting there for the bus. I can see them in the rain, all trying to get under the bus stop roof. And in the sunshine, lolling about on our front wall. He was camouflaged in camo trousers with a civvy jacket on. But I knew he was a soldier. Maybe he'd been in battle. I've been watching about it, History of World War II in colour. 
and I could see him under a metal helmet. I knew he wasn't in World War II, I'm not that stupid, but hiding out in the desert would be the same, dodging the bullets in the sand, hands overhead. I could help him, I could. He might have nowhere to go. I could help. But I never said anything to him. I never left the house, did I? Stupid girl. Can't get past the mirror. Can't get past the door. The doctor said, relax, and that's all I do is relax. Relax and dream of beaches. Me and the soldier lying on the golden sands of Margate, making love in the shallow waters like from here to eternity. They say that, making love. They don't mean sex. They didn't have sex back then. Have I got time for another? Have I got plenty of time? Uh, right. Oh, right, okay. I was, am I on early? Am I all right? I'll just keep reading, sorry. Keep reading. Until we catch up. Until we catch up. Oh, cool. I've got ages. <laughs> you get bored of me soon, right? <laughs> okay. Um, this, is, uh, this is another one about my nan who... Um, it's another buzz poem for some reason. There's a lot of buses in this. Uh, it's called Running for a Buzz, and it's about how she got her scar. Can't miss the buzz, but it takes too long walking, yawning, stretch of pavement, past the house where Olive lived, friend with the heat in her hands, and the number 101 that held a young couple who argued in the street, and the community centre for street parties, Christmas dances. Her feet troubled the pavement, dashing faster, skipping over dislodged paving stones and to the bottom, turning past the small run of small shops, but the buzz is already there. She'd never make it. Picked up her pace, running out of time, out of breath, holding her hat on with one hand, in the other the shopping trolley bag, dragging behind her with bumps and bounces. Roadworks force a stench of hot tar, filling her nostrils. She clenches them but carries on the buzz, her object of desire. Um, eyes on and brain set in motion, ignored her feet, tripped up one betraying toe caught on an upturned tectonic fault of paving sends her flying onto hot tar searing into the skin of her chin sticking it together making a scar that would forever be in my mind a part of her face beautiful in her mind the scar of rash decisions of running when you shouldn't run shouldn't climb shouldn't be beautiful When I'm an old lady, as you might know that poem, <laughs> when I'm an old lady, I won't wear purple. I'll wear a bikini, the costume, not the atoll. Though I shall be the size of a small island. When I'm an old lady, I will eat cake until I am the size of a house and fill the interior of a three-bed semi and it takes two helicopters to airlift me to my funeral. When I'm an old lady, I will blow raspberries and pull faces at the other old ladies who are outboxed as they try to grimace but are too botoxed. When I'm an old lady, I will have to sport a name badge of the sort that says, don't call me Nan. But my, if my kids have kids, they can call me Gran, Master Flash, hashtag you old toad, as I greet them in my bikini, drinking martini by the truckload.
going to cover it. <laughs> um, okay, there's a couple of... Uh, I'm, a, I'm a parent carer of a, a child who had a language disorder. And um, when you're a parent of someone and you're also a carer, it's like you have to kind of do it 24-7 and people don't really get it. And this was one that was in an anthology about um, being a carer. It's called Not All Carers Are The Same. And what do you do? Parent carer, I say, and the look is blank. The attention wavers. Doesn't that just mean you're a mum? Aren't we all carers? It means I'm a lawyer, an advocate. It means I'm a secretary, an admin expert. It means I'm not able to put her in other care because she is bullied and misunderstood. It means the grandparents won't babysit or have her overnight. It means I have to be patient when others would shout. It means I am an expert on every little thing she says and doesn't say. It means I am an expert in communications, that I was fobbed off by the NHS, by the teachers, by everyone wanting to save money. It means I had to fight. It means people ask me if she's autistic every day and don't understand that she hasn't got that. It means I'm seen as a failure, lost the race to produce the perfect child. It means my relationship broke up. It means I'm the only one left. It means I brought her up bereft. It means I do not go back to full-time work. It means I have to explain myself and her and how. She looks fine, they say. She is fine, I reply and walk away. Got another one? One more? One more, okay, cool. Mm. I'll just fill up the time by flicking through pages at this rate. Oh, oh, do you want a funny one or a horrible one? <laughs> funny. All right. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> oh, I'll just do that. Okay. This is my love poem. Um, this is called The Morning After. I love you, she said. A smug smile spread across his face. He did not reciprocate. What did you say? I said I dove you, she said. Do you have a cold? No. Why would I say I love you? That would be wrong. That would be crass. That would be jumping the gun. I said I dove you. And she reached behind her back into her magic bag where she retrieved a dove, ever so gently placed it on his head so that its wings wouldn't flap. I dove you, she said. The dove flew off to freedom, and so did she. Oh, he said, I only wanted a duck. Thank you. Okay, Chris. There we go. I'm just letting them settle in at the back before we... So next we have Chris Salt. She's primarily a poet with roots deeply planted in the theatre. She's a literature convener in the Big Lit Book Festival in southwest Scotland. And now we have Chris.
technology. <laughs> I've been here before. I'm a Brummie, actually, Rachel. Yeah, but I get elocuted. <laughs> so I talk posh. Um, I'm a, a few poems about um, survival. I had a, a big 39th birthday recently, so it's kind of much on my mind. Um, this one is called Firing Her Up, and it was going to be dedicated to Jeremy Clarkson, but it's, it's not actually about cars, and it's not autobiographical. When you, she woke with the starter, sprang like a leopard on ignition. It was brands hatch, high velocity, fueled with testosterone, piston going like the clappers, a crescendo of revs, hungry to reach their destination, tires, everything screaming, then a slow breaking, an exhalation of exhaust, a coming to rest like quiet breathing. Now he uses a crank handle to get the old girl started, a careful nurturing of clutch and gear. He takes her out on quiet, residential roads, although the electrics are not what they were, the fine upholstery scuffed and lumpy, he can still fire her up. He still loves her, and given the right encouragement, she still goes. <laughs> Another one on a, on a, on a similar, similar theme of everybody who's certain age doesn't do it, do they? Well, love on the beach. He must have been 80. She was topless, a dug slung like a used condom on his snowdrift of chest hair, skin slack as an elephant's, hammocks of it drooping under belly, forearm, chin. This, on a beach, sprawling with taut flesh, plumped, oiled, sun-bronzed, young. And they were kissing, not a cheek peck, but full on, a lover's kiss, tongues licking pleasure from each other's mouths, oblivious to disgust and sidelong glance. Let that be us, I thought, not daytime TV watching amaryllis grow, pullovers with v-necks from catalogues, crosswords and puzzle books, small dreams, spring vests, big pants, and running out of talk. But bite and suck and lick and roving hand, still lovely to each other on sultry sand. This, this one is actually called survival. When mum's gallbladder exploded, the doctor shook his head and closed the door. His message was uncoded. We could operate, he said, but the chances she'll survive are pretty poor. Mum opted for the operation, the lengthy odds of not being dead. 
on the trolley things looked less than jolly. Then opening one eye, she said, check my lottery tickets, will you? <laughs> More survival. This one was written to um, the historian Caroline Bingham, called Spider. After submitting to therapy at London Zoo, you showed me the photograph and the certificate to prove it, you and the massive spider in wary proximity. Not exactly befriended, you said, but cautiously tolerated, his bee-soft furriness low-slung between knobble-kneed articulated hairy legs crouched on your lapel like an oversized brooch. Having once relieved your hand basin of a skittering country cousin, while you mismuffeted in the kitchen refusing point blank to pee until I declared the bathroom a spider-free zone, I was impressed. After the cancer came back, I always wrote to Caroline, my conqueror of spiders, on all my cards and letters, a mantra of wishful thinking, a coded note addressed to that certificated courage, a cross-fingered spell against that other spider, deadly at your throat. And finally, if imagination will let you imagine that you are in a ladies' communal changing room. It's called Him to Mastectomy. Here's to the woman with one tit, who strips down to her puckered scars and fronts the mirror, doesn't give a shit for the pert, double-breasted wonder bras sneaking a furtive gander at her missing bit. Poor lady, they are thinking, can her husband bear to touch her? Will she ever dare to wear that slinky, low-cut sweater? Here's to the woman with half a bust, who wears her lack of symmetry with grace and moist with lust, offers a single nipple like a berry to her lover's tongue. Here's to the single-breasted ones come home victorious from their wars, wearing their wounds as badges on the chests of Amazons. She ought to cover up. It's embarrassing, it's shocking. I'm sure she thinks she's very brave, but everybody's looking. Here's to those wondrous affrontages out on the town in sauna, pool, and gym, those who, when whole, were dying, now less than whole, become themselves again. Thank you. And now, by a miraculous feat of transformation, I turn from poet into MC. And it's my pleasure to introduce Emma Gordon.
Emma's debut chapbook, Those Who Jump, was published by Tall Lighthouse. She's performed at many spoken word events and festivals, including Glastonbury. She's been shortlisted for Cumbria Writer of the Year and was highly recommended in the Rosamond Prize and the University Women in the Arts Prize. Now, she must be worth a fiver in the pot for the Poetry Society. Emma Gordon. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm just going to do uh, three poems. Um, the first one is about my dad. Uh, it's called After My Grandmother's Funeral. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. After my grandmother's funeral, my brother-in-law gets my father so drunk that there is shiny green globules on his rough shaved chin like gaudy baubles against pine needles in April. He has been drinking shots. My father never drinks shots. Other than him and my brother-in-law, the barman who keeps changing channels, and the three men who blend with the seats like a working men on a Wednesday, the pub was empty when I arrived. My father has no brothers. My father can barely stand, and his mother is only hours in the earth. I watch him in the one black suit he owns make his way to the toilets, like the layout of tables and chairs has suddenly become complex. He navigates a peculiar route. My father has never been good at finding his way. Leaning on the bar, he looks into my eyes as though he can see a memory strong enough to break the surface from beneath him. Like a child, I follow him outside and he cries so hard into my shoulder that I am frightened. My father never had a father that we were to speak of. Here in my arms are all the abandoned boys of him grasping everything he can believe to be permanence in a daughter. Um, you know that song that goes, ever fallen in love with someone you shouldn't have fallen in love with? Well, I've done that a couple of times. <laughs> okay, this is about one of those times. <laughs> it's called, I Could Tell You. I know now you will be sleeping beneath a sky where the stars have been blinded. Your city will bleach out light from its mouth. Here in the dark of a country a flash is the unexpected wings of an owl. I'm not sleeping. I'm driving and I'm thinking of you. A flashback is us in a pub. Guinness froth had soaped our glasses like foot-trodden snow-brown foam. I tell you, I know someone who can read the future from this, the shifting shape of a pint slow residue. The light is white, knuckle stark, and everything has edges. The carpet is run-down pub red with gold diamonds. It has a worn path, one that forks to the bar, one that forks to the toilets, which are noticeably cold and have a fan cut out of one of the sash windows. It catars, bringing up the wind, and everything smells like it was scrubbed only an hour ago with an eye-stinging chemical that can't quite get rid of the tinge of all the women who have stood here pissed and crying. And while I was alone in there, you were outside smoking. 
I looked in the three mirrors above the sink and with my hands rested on one of the basins that had the same brown lines cracked in its bowl as the soap on the side. I looked into my own eyes and made one wish that this was the beginning. It's yours now from that place. The soft green luminous dark of my car is a radio four quiz. The steady tone of a voice asking questions while knowing the answers. A sound that is reserved for quiz show hosts and knowing lovers. I learn that the brightest place on earth to see stars is a Namim desert. I sit with the engine off, the lights on, the window down, chain smoking at the top of a hill. And I know there's no way I can call or text or tell you. Does anyone remember those things called immersion heaters that heated the water up in your house? You still have one, yeah? I've got one. I've got one. So, immersion heaters, I still don't know how they work. I think they had something called a back boiler involved in them. And it was a coal fire, right? So, I grew up in a house that had one of these, these kind of heaters, an immersion heater. And um, so, it took like two hours if you wanted to go in the bath. You had to put it on and wait for the water to heat up. And I shared, a, uh, I shared a bed with my sister, and the bathroom was right next door to, to where the bathroom... Uh, the bedroom and the bathroom were right next door to each other. And these things made like a grumbling noise when they were, they were heating the water up. And my sister was scared, and we were like five and seven, and she was like, oh, I'm scared of this noise. And of course, me being a big sister, I was like, it's okay, it's okay. It's just a monster that lives in the tank. That's all it is. You don't need to be scared of it. And then she would fall asleep, and I would be like... Oh, God, there's a monster that lives in the tank. And it was like my own terrible story I'd created. And um, anyhow, I started... I, I used to pronounce it emergent heater. And I thought that was short for emergency, right? Because I thought we had emergency heating. I actually thought that's what it was. Um, this, is, this is called Piss. It's for my sister, Katie. When we were kids, we lived in that house that only had a coal fire. No heating upstairs, but a water tank in a bathroom cupboard with a louvre door, dressed in a shiny red puffer jacket held together with duct tape. The immersion heater that we pronounced emergent. After Christmas, when we'd finished the sweets from a plastic hexagonal box, we ripped its label off, took it in the bath, paled and poured, paled and poured it on each other in a game we called waterfall. The room, a steam-filled lung, expanded against the window's frosted glass where you could trace the shape of roses, finger drips inking down like stems in condensation watercolour, the backyard, a black canvas behind, and the paints cracked off on the sill. The soap grey water would only hold its heat so long and soon I could feel the air winding around my shoulders. We took turns to lie down in water that was already cold and we learned how even that can start to feel warm to cooling skins. Try the hot tap, try the hot tap. We let it run 
We let it run, our shiny eyes brimming with expectation and the hope of heat, but quietly we knew it had done its running. The silver floor did not become steam and we'd only made the water colder. So we played, as children can do, ignoring sense and the two towels folded on the toilet seat until you needed to have a wee, but were too shivering to get out. Do it in the box, I said. I remember you, standing ankle deep. You balanced your hands on my shoulders while I offered it up between your six-year-old thighs and there came the heralding trumpet of its arrival. I could feel through the plastic how your little yellow piss was so warm. Held it, soup careful, surprised at its weight while you sat and the water rose just a note to my belly. I placed it between us in the bath, not quite deep enough for one to spill into the other, and held it. Like somebody joining a strange seance, you cupped both your hands on the opposite side, the only warm glow in the cold room, in the cold water between us. And in that breath-held silence that must have looked like we were waiting for something to happen. That, that was the knowing of our little bodies, knowing that they would always have to give up so much of themselves in the hope of warmth and an honest reply. Hello listeners, uh, Oliver Fox here. I'm producing these podcasts um, just to say that the next reading from Alice Hiller is really powerful and moving, but please do be advised that it directly engages with the subject of childhood sexual abuse. Um, we've put this reading at the end of the recording so that if you're likely to find this particularly distressing, uh, you can press stop now. Um, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the fifth and final part of the podcast whenever it's released. Can you hear me now? Right. My, my father died when I was eight, and I was then sexually abused by my mother until the age of 13. I'm going to give you five poems of healing through witness. In the first one, I'm seven. Evening rituals. Papa, it is now October. I sit on the windowsill behind our green curtains, watching the leaves in the park twirling orange and brown down through the autumn dusk. From your wheelchair in the brightly lit living room, you call me, say I am your alley cat. Next year, you will be gone and my mother's anger will climb out from its hiding place. She will rear up, naked as a giantess, and smelling of the je reviens you gave her. I'm now nine. In white milk, two golden tongues boil beside the fire. With care, you eat yours, 
the television magics doves from sleeves loses rabbits in top hats until owls hoot your scared feet up the shining blue stairs into the bed box where her fingers unspell the psalm you repeat force the tight lock you clench writing her name in red wet while she soars your head from the rest when you wake morning will serrate as you wipe yourself clean little magician's assistant i'm now 12 entering puberty yuletide 1976 outside our garden is hardening to diamonds their coldness pulling at me like a magnet i want to sleep curled in the bottom of the freezer where lost pity pois lie like bullets among the plucked pheasants oh let me be naked in clear plastic and ice myself like a lolly so nothing can fit inside me mummy is decorating our tree she tells me to thread stars through its prickly branches on christmas eve we set angels above candles we measure wine and cinnamon when her guests come i orbit the carol singers passing round the mince pies in bed mummy reaches for my wishbone she wrestles her hand down amongst my sweetmeats they are as slippery as the stuffing we put in the turkey when she pushes her finger deep in my private place we will rise early the next morning when all the frost has melted and my dirtied body will be as heavy as the grey sky above St Catherine's where we will kneel side by side to worship three months after that I decided to stop eating the weekend before the hospital when each step rasps she walks under leaves abandoning their trees her sloping ribs grow silken down 
veins braid her legs. Later, in the larder, she eats dog meat, chews white maggots, then spits them out. That night, for the first time, she undresses with the light on, then looks. It took me until I was in my early 30s to end all contact with my other, my mother, and begin to heal. This last poem is from now. My blooded bullseye, child, how many linen nights were you targeted, pushed into, left, swollen and stinging? How many teenage days did you walk, Nicholas, whorish, then the long years when despair pressed her features into mine, made me doubt my whole self and hate my own face until I found that bed, child where you hid, felt you wake, climb into my arms. Now, at last, I can hold our deep hurt. Thank you very much.